Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say it so much. The police in riot gear with Trump. I am ashamed to call myself a European. The recognition of Guaido. Unelected gobshite is an absolute embarrassment. Now, you did use the word gobshite, so uh, I would re- reprimand you over that. Hello and welcome back to another episode of I Foresee Trouble. Um, sorry about the long hiatus. We've had some issues with booking the podcast rooms, but we're going to try and stick to more regular scheduling from here on out. Um, this week, it's been kind of a, or last week was a mix of committee stuff, getting back into the swing of things in Brussels. Um, and we're looking forward to having some school groups come over this week. So one of the big themes of the stuff that, that you were talking about in your committees um, in, across various different ones was the question of China um, and a new kind of building up of China as this big threat. So I know that came up in the Foreign Affairs Committee, Mick. Yeah, and it's actually, it came up as Foreign Affairs and Security and Defence and um, it's like as if um, there's a bigger game in town all of a sudden and um, it's you get the impression that uh, Ukraine might even become a sideshow, uh, especially on the part of the Americans. I mean, the Americans have been very happy to uh, pump all the arms possible into Ukraine to make sure the war doesn't stop. Um, but the, the bigger picture for America is definitely China. China is, more, is a bigger issue for the Americans than the Russians. And uh, now people, they, they talk about China as if China was a threat to the security of America and the security of Europe. Uh, but we actually, we know that that's actually not, not the case. And what Ameri- what China is, is a threat to America's financial supremacy and to the supremacy of the dollar because the Chinese economy is growing so big and so fast. Uh, it will likely be the, the world's largest economy, the most powerful economy on the planet. Uh, within 10 to 15 years. So that's a huge problem for the Americans and they're trying to uh, stall the progress of the Chinese and uh, they seem fairly blatant about how they might do that. Uh, so while, I mean, we, we've people are very familiar with the sanctions that were imposed on Russia uh, after 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. And then uh, more sanctions uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine last February, uh, just over a year ago now. Um, so at that time, it was kind of agreed the Germans didn't want sanctions to be of a, of a nature that would have a big impact on them. So, for example, they didn't want uh, Russia uh, barred out of the SWIFT system. They didn't want sanctions on the gas and oil uh, because it was going to have a big impact on German industry. Uh, but obviously, uh, things kept changing. And uh, before uh, the year was out, 
they couldn't find enough uh, ways of sanctioning Russia. And so everything changed. And, of course, we also had uh, the uh, the attack on Nord Stream 2, uh, which obviously is, is another subject again. But uh, obviously it's a bit shocking that no one in Europe seems to want to know who did it. Uh, now that they kind of realised that the Russians didn't blow up their own pipe, uh, they could have just turned off the tap if they didn't want gas to go to Europe uh, through it. Uh, but it's really scary that the Europeans don't want to know about it. But with regard to China, now the talk is about sanctioning China. And this is going to be a mad scenario. Uh, I, th- I think people at home should realise that if we go down the same space with China as we've gone down with Russia, it will have an incredible impact on life in Europe because we have become very dependent on business with China. And with China is not just a massive exporter. It's also a massive importer of European goods. And they have nearly a fifth of the peoples uh, of the world, 1.4 billion and that's an incredible market for European products. And if, if we impose sanctions on them, they'll impose sanctions on us. And it'll be tit for tat and it'll be a disaster for everybody. And this is a mad place to go. But this is where the Americans want to drag the Europeans. Uh, that's just the ladybird version of the challenges we're facing. Um, and I probably should add um, as well that India... Uh, holds almost a fifth, another fifth of the world's population. And since the war in Ukraine started, uh, people should know that India and China have been getting on better than ever before because China has refused, or India refused to condemn the Russian invasion. Uh, they, they said they were staying neutral and uh, they weren't taking sides because they wanted to continue uh, importing uh, energy from Russia, which is what it's doing getting it at a very cheap price and even selling it on to other parts of the world. So um, Europe should be very careful about what uh, where it goes with China. Well, I think it's mad, isn't it? It's kind of like a new level of extremism from the centre. Uh, this is, is just ridiculous nonsense and I think it'll probably be a step too far for some of the people who've been cheerleading uh, sanctions. There was a lot of talk last week about, you know... Um, more cooperation between Russia and China in terms of the war in Ukraine, which is totally not true. There's no evidence of any military support by the Chinese uh, for Russia whatsoever. In fact, what China did do was come out with a peace plan for Ukraine and the Americans were very quickly uh, to dampen that and basically pretty much throw it in the bin. And we have this narrative then in the European Parliament ignoring that uh, as a way forward for on our continent and instead going on as Mick says about sanctions and the danger of China. And it is this idea of being dependent on China as if there's some sinister forces at work. It's global capitalism. And the truth is that China has replaced the US as the big player. I mean, we had a discussion in the Transport Committee and it was on China's takeover of Europe's ports. Basically, critical infrastructure should not be in foreign hands. And China has a lot of ports. Now, there's a lot of 
critical infrastructure in Europe which is in foreign hands but there are regulations with that but the point I made in the discussion was well it wouldn't be in foreign hands lads if you hadn't privatised it in the first place the only reason why uh, China is is able to purchase parts of our ports or any infrastructure is that particularly in the austerity years under the behest of the European Commission many member states sold off their critical infrastructure and this is what has led to a situation probably as well was a contributory factor in the Greek train crash where tragically 57 European citizens lost their uh, lives there with poor infrastructure and a failure to keep up critical infrastructure. But in the course of that discussion, it emerged that actually uh, China isn't the biggest player at all. China has only 7% of a stake in terms of its, or the, the stake, international stake, China is only 7%. They're third of the international players in who have a role in, in European infrastructure. The biggest by far is the United States between 30 to 40% of European uh, infrastructure of the percentage that's in foreign hands is, is US, followed by the UK and China is a mere 7%. But if you listen to the narrative in here, you would think that China has bought up the whole of Europe uh, and actually in the port situation, it's the running of the ports that they're involved, not actually the ownership of the ports. But this is capitalism. That's what it is. And they have replaced the, the US as the main shareholder. It's the main player, I suppose, internationally. And for the EU to follow the US's weaponization of that, it's just, it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And it kind of ties into other stuff that you've talked about in terms of, um, you know, them, the EU demonising the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative and then proposing very similar things themselves. Um, well, it's the militarisation of everything now, because we'd had another discussion earlier at, at the transport. We had the European Investment Bank in and one of the questions I asked them was about why are you funding uh, you know, they're funding now, they can fund military projects for the first time ever, uh, as long as they're dual use. So as you can do them. So we're spending money now on upgrading the roads and the railways and all that. So tanks and trucks can go on and people can go on them as well. So they can kind of cover that and that. But in the course of the conversation, they said, but we don't do we don't fund all the projects we used to fund. For example, he said, we used to provide finance for housing. We don't do that anymore. Now, I nearly fell off my seat. I didn't even know that. So the European Investment Bank, which releases billions in order to supposedly secure the interests of the citizens of Europe, doesn't allow funding to be released for housing, but is now allowing funding for militarism. And people at home would want to wake up as to what's going on in Europe, because this is the direction that's going on here. Um, it's absolutely shocking. And one of the things I asked him, because he was very clear that they'd been funding and active in Ukraine since 2017, funding infrastructural uh, projects in the transport sector. The 26 projects underway in terms of roads and motorways in Ukraine. And I said, well, you know, we were all very glad to help Ukraine if we could, but was he concerned given the European Court of Auditors and the general knowledge of the corruption in Ukraine and the fact that it's the people of Ukraine who are going to have to be paying these loans back for decades? Was he concerned about that situation? And his answer was, that was we stand with Ukraine. So, no, basically, we don't mind. But these are, are worrying times. I mean, just on that same team, um, I, I, there's, there's been a powerful... Uh, report being published on 
land in Ukraine and what's happening to it, who owns it, who controls it. And the European Investment Bank have actually helped oligarchs to buy up large tracts of state land. They've helped oligarchs to buy it. And they're facilitating foreign uh, direct investment in the purchase of land in Ukraine. And it's reached a point where a huge... They reckon that 28% of the land in Ukraine today, and Ukraine has amazing agricultural land, and they reckon that 28% of the best of arable agricultural land in Ukraine is controlled by oligarchs. And of the nine largest companies, none of them have, are tax-based in Ukraine. They're all in tax havens across uh, Europe and uh, places like the Cayman Islands. They're in Cyprus. They're in Luxembourg. Uh, some of them are in Holland. I mean, this is mad stuff. And the European Investment Bank are helping this to happen. And wh wh so what you have then, you have 8 million Ukrainian farmers struggling and they're protesting about all the state land. They've changed the law now so that in next year, in 2024, foreign interests will be able to buy up uh, amounts up to 10,000 hectares per organisation. 10,000 hectares per organisation they're going to be allowed to buy next year. And we have, have 8 million farmers in Ukraine struggling to make an existence and finding it very hard to get uh, financial support from anybody. And we, here we have, where all the European Investment Bank stands by Ukraine. Well, it doesn't stand by the 8 million farmers that need help. It's standing by the richest of the rich uh, and helping them to buy up uh, Ukrainian state land. And then you'll find as well, probably buying up uh, the small farmers who are struggling, a bit like we've seen in Ireland over the years. Exactly. And the total hypocrisy of it, like there's rules around who can buy up critical infrastructure in Europe and in the EU, and rightly so in terms of foreign uh, ownership. But Ukraine is up for sale uh, to whoever wants to buy it. It's really, really um, <coughs> frightening stuff. There's been a lot of talk as well, um, just in Europe, about the fact that uh, Macron came out with a great statement, said he was shocked at uh, how little... Um, support that the EU and the Americans were getting uh, for their take on the war and their take on China uh, from the global south. And the truth of the matter is that 80% of the world's population have not bought in to this US-NATO proxy war and they do not support it. And the Europeans are shocked that and they've actually been torn uh, Africa uh, in particular, trying to muster up support. But the African countries are coming out strongly saying, we want peace. And they're not, uh, they're saying, we're not taking sides in your war. We don't agree with the war. We think you should be sitting down and working for peace. Brazil, likewise, Lula has, has been very strong on it and saying, under no circumstances are we supporting uh, this war. We want peace. And we, we, can't, we don't understand why the Europeans haven't been looking for peace. But Europe is isolating itself from the majority of the world by taking the, the US-NATO position on this war. And it's something that we could... Uh, learn to regret very quickly. I think there's the beginnings of a little bit of space for dialogue now. There's even some articles creeping into the Irish mainstream media giving an alternative analysis and talking about the need to 
de-escalate, which is a, a first, really. Um, but as you say, internationally, we're completely out of touch. I mean, Mexico tried initiatives. AMLO there had been trying to push it. Lula, others, it's just... Uh, well, I suppose it's also really clear to anyone who's looking at it how the West has never cared about the like many, many other wars that they've been participating in over the years. And suddenly this is kind of the fight of democracy, quote unquote, versus authoritarianism. You when you hear that or when you hear about that they're yeah. into oust a dictator, then you should always yeah. get worried. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And it does tie back as well to something else that happened uh, last week. Well, in terms of uh, refugee children on the move and this young Afghan man. Or yeah, I mean, we a teenager. couple of things. I mean, this is the thing that we make the point here that there's never a joining of the dots. There's endless and endless and countless discussions going on here about the refugee issue in Europe as if, you know, it's Europe's problem, as in we're the victims of the problem rather than one of the causes of it. And there's never a joining of the dots that the instability that we cause globally gives rise to people having to flee their homes in the first place. But the Libe committee that I'm on had a, um, a hearing with on children on the move about the situation of unaccompanied minors um, making the journey. And we were privileged to have Sajid Khan Nasiri, uh, an Afghan, young Afghan who made the journey over two years from Afghanistan to Belgium. He's now a Belgian citizen and he made they made a kind of a film of his journey, a documentary shadow game. And actually he is a follow on one now. Um, mental game, I think it's called, about the, the trauma of the journey on young people and um, Sajid Khan and uh, other young migrants gave testimony about their journey. And I have to say, I, I broke down in the middle of the meeting because I just I'm absolutely sick listening to people in here waffle on about that. There are no pushbacks in a week when 100 people died off the coast of Italy, including a, a newborn baby. Uh, washed up on a tourist beach in Europe. The Mediterranean journey is, um, is the most dangerous migrant route in the world. And yet that young man gave testimony about how his parents, when they sent him off at 15, said they wanted him to go and have a better life. They were sending him for his safety, but that it was the most dangerous journey he ever made. He was pushed back on every border. Um, there were, you know, they were t other testimony. The others gave the stories. We know them tortured, beaten, all their materials robbed. They get to Belgium. Their age is doubted. Um, supposed to do an age test. Uh, if you fail the age test, which they invariably do, they say they're older than they are. Then you're kind of in a sort of a direct provision type setup where you just left there. Uh, he didn't do the age test and ended up getting to school. But his friends who didn't, who were said to be too old, one of them committed suicide. One of his other friends was lost their lives in Bosnia. This is what's happening in, in Europe. Like this is our democracy. It's just sickening. And I mean, we make these points. We've made them before. But when the young people themselves, and that's what we said to them, <coughs> give that testimony, it's so much more powerful. And yet there are people in here who brazenly will say there are no pushbacks. Uh, it's just incredible. But we, we see this blatantly at home in Ireland at the moment where uh, the treatment of refugees from Ukraine is totally different to the treatment of refugees from Muslim countries, for example, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Syria, uh, from Yemen, from Africa. 
uh, a whole different approach. And we've literally at this stage, we've just about almost enshrined it in legislation that there's a two-tier system. Now, we are 100% right to take care of people fleeing war in Ukraine. And that's to be commended. But the blatant racism from the Irish government in relation to the other refugees is shocking. And the government is worried about the, the, the growth of the far right in Ireland, and we should be. But they are facilitating it by engaging in blatant racism towards people from Muslim countries. Well, I mean, and, and the policy is, and, and the young people were talking about it, like when they make that hazardous journey, um, and, you know, see people probably die on the journey around them again, and then they come here and then more problems start and there's no supports and a lack of integration there. I mean, God almighty, he went out and as we have done, the streets of, of Brussels are filled with areas where young Afghans primarily, but young men are sleeping out in very cold uh, temperatures here without any input at all. And meanwhile, Europe has an ageing population and they need young people. And actually, they're sending a lot of Afghans back. That's the decision now that they're repatriating them back to Afghanistan, a country where 90% of the people are dependent on humanitarian aid. I mean, you're sending them back to their deaths, really, um, in that instance. It doesn't make any sense when Europe would benefit from uh, allowing these young people work and be part of, you know, to help develop our ageing economies. It's it's a plus. Germany learned that years ago when they took in the, the million uh, Syrians or so. It was a positive, very big positive for them. But, you know, you need integration and you need to provide the resources there. It can be a win-win. Instead, the only winners here are the big security companies. In many instances, the same people profiting from border securitization as the ones who provided the weaponry that destabilised a lot of those countries in the first place place but fair play to the young people involved and we actually on a daily basis were contacted by Afghans in a, a dire situation that country has been treated worse than any other probably but you know the young people there are really so impressive. And when the Irish government are making it so difficult for people from Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria to come to Ireland and making it almost impossible for them uh, to make a go of a living there they should always keep in mind that we help to destroy those countries by allowing Shannon Airport to be used as a US military base mm. on the way to just causing untold destruction in these areas. In Iraq alone, a hundred or one million citizens were killed. One million citizens, not troops, citizens, off the Richter scale, and we had nothing to say about it. Mm. Oh no, all they're saying is and more investment is going into yet another security system, which we also discussed in Libya this week, was advanced passenger information, which will affect about a billion people, including all of our listeners. Anybody travelling in and out of Europe or within Europe is going to be monitored by this advanced passenger information, your data being handed over. So what is actually being created is a massive security surveillance superstructure across Europe to so-called deal with our border security when actually if they spent a fraction of that time and money into developing legal pathways, everybody would be so much better off. It's criminal. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss just before we wrap up? Well, uh, um, I suppose I should touch, there was a, 
We had some very interesting uh, discussions at, at Envy last week. Um, two of them were, uh, one was on pesticides and the use of pesticides and another one was on fertiliser. And uh, first, on the pesticide one, it, it, it was, the, the debate went on for about an hour and a half, right? And it was amazing to listen to it. The amount of MEPs in the parliament who are still opposed to banning dangerous pesticides, chemicals that are poisoning us. We're using chemicals on, on the production of food and it's getting into our food system and it's, it's uh, causing huge health problems. And we're reluctant to ban it because Big Agri doesn't want it to be banned. So what you had was you had some people calling these dangerous pesticides and you had other people calling them uh, plant protection products. Now, so you had people literally getting up saying, I refuse to call them pesticides. I'm going to call them plant protection products. Now, what we really should be calling them is pro plant pro plant protection products that don't protect your health. That's what they are, right? I mean, this is madness. And there's a debate actually this evening as well on the derogation of uh, a whole lot of pesticides that have already been classified as dangerous for our health. But the, the, the EU has given a derogation, in other words, a relaxation of the rule for certain member states for uh, certain dangerous pesticides. And there's over, over 100 derogations across Europe in the, in the last couple of years. Over 100 of dangerous chemicals that are deemed not safe to be used, but they're giving them special permission to use it because, oh, they need, they need to use them. They're, they don't have a replacement product. And people were getting up and saying, we, we shouldn't talk about banning pesticides. We should, and because there's, there's, the regulation that's been recommended is that we, we reduce pesticide use by 50% by 2030. And they're saying, what we should talk, we, we shouldn't say that. We should say that we need 50% replacement uh, by 2030. In other words, find some, we, we can't get rid of them until we find someone else uh, that'll work instead of them. This is madness. I mean, we're talking about people's health. And the idea that you're going to put farmers out of business is not true. And you've got to help the farmers to get to the space where they can do without these dangerous pesticides. And I mean, and if that means the farmers getting a more fair price for their food uh, and a better price for their food, well, so be it. They should be paid properly to produce good food. And the, the idea that, oh, it's an issue of food security. Oh, we can't do away with pesticides. It's an issue of food security. Food security? What about people's health? Is, is, is that a, 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 an element to do with uh, security? I mean, this is nuts, like. Yeah, well, I mean, the war has caused a huge amount of uh, food insecurity as well with the disruption of grain and all that kind of thing. And they've made no efforts to stop that. So that just shows the hypocrisy. But I think it's a very good example or a very bad example, rather, of the influence of lobbying, because that's what it is like. These are the big chemical companies, one of the many insidious organisations that infest these chambers, drip feeding constantly, constantly. <laughs> 
targeting the institutions to water down any provisions that were there. And we actually had a discussion in the INGA, the Foreign Interference Committee. Now, normally they'd be screaming and roaring and hanging from the rafters to be given out about Russian and Chinese and all this. That's the normal INGA meetings. But this one was on climate change, this info. And there was no one at it except myself and one other Green MEP, even though that was across four committee memberships of it. But it was actually really interesting and was precisely on these points about how scientific evidence is being manipulated basically for corporate greed. That's the long and short of it. And they're distorting the impact on the climate and that as well. And a lot of supposedly scientific or neutral bodies are not scientific or neutral at all when you join the dots and that kind of thing. And it's incredibly dangerous because that is the biggest problem, if you like, for the planet is is the battle to to, to save it and to, to tackle climate change. But it's it's that idea about how do you get to a situation where scientific knowledge is truly independent, free from bias and influence. It's very, very difficult. It, it needs to be publicly provided, but then we see sometimes the public institutions can get infiltrated as well to, to make money. So we have to have public ownership of, I think, the, the fertilisers and pesticides and all of these shouldn't be in private hands. It's too dangerous. Well, speaking of the fertilisers, uh, the other issue that was that got big coverage at, at Envy Committee um, last week was uh, the so-called fertiliser crisis. So for years, we've been using too much chemical fertiliser, which is also having uh, uh, an impact on the food chain. And uh, more people said, oh, well, the farmers can't do without it because yield will drop if we don't use them. Well, now it turns out that uh, because of the war and Russia and Belarus are the two biggest exporters in the world of fertiliser. So now fertiliser, the price of it has gone through the roof. And there's been a 70% reduction in the use of chemical fertilizers in Europe in the la in 2022. 70% reduction, right? So what's happening is uh, pe people, uh, farmers are literally saying, well, okay, uh, maybe if I, if, I, if, I, if I don't spend all this crazy money on chemical fertilizer, my yield might be a little bit smaller, but I'm actually going to do better out of it. And he's also going to have a, a cleaner crop. Uh, he's going to produce cleaner food. And there was actually a, a, a very impressive guy from the commission uh, speaking on it. And his name was uh, Sc uh, Scannell. And he's from uh, Tarbert in Kerry. And he was really impressed. With that. He, really, he really knew what he was talking about. And he was talking about necessity being the mother of invention and an actual fact that the escalation in the price of fertiliser was actually driving us in a good direction in the sense that we are... Uh, we are going to have to be uh, make more sensible use of fertilizer, and we shouldn't be overusing it. And he was really impressive. Now, very good. Mm. Mm. One bit of uh, one one light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. I think we shouldn't uh, fail to end the program by mentioning International Women's Day yeah. this week as well. And uh, you know, seemingly there's a the Parliament observes a strike of all women workers, but that excludes you and me, Kira. I think. <laughs> Everyone else except us. <laughs> Although some of the team, the male members of the team have said they're going to strike in solidarity and they're not going to come in on Wednesday. But that's what they think. That's all I'll say. But happy International Women's Day to women everywhere. Yep. Okay, on that note. All bye the best. Bye-bye.